welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the very first event taking place for the uh, LSE's um, Space for Thought Literary Festival um, with the theme Utopias. And just a quote from um, a rather um, ambitious uh, festival plan, it's the eighth literary festival inspired by the anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia and will explore the power of dreams and the imagination and the importance of idealism, dissidence, um, escapism and nostalgia, as well as the benefits at looking at the world in different ways. And so I think this panel session in memory of David Cesarani is a particularly apt um, initial event. Um, I'm very pleased to have on the panel today uh, Professor Michael Berkowitz, Professor David DeVries and Dr. Sharman Kaddish. Um, just briefly their biographies, Michael is Professor of Modern Jewish History at University College London and author of a new book, uh, which will be available for signings later, Jews in Photography in Britain. And it's the first ever historical investigation of the prominence of Jewish people in all things photographic in Britain, ranging from the mid-19th century to Queen Elizabeth's controversial photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz uh, in 2007. David de Vries is a professor at Tel Aviv University and author most recently of Strike Action and Nation Building, which unravels the trajectory of strikes in Israeli society as a rich source for the social historical analysis of an otherwise nation-orientated and highly politicised history. Sharman Kaddish is Director of Jewish Heritage UK. She's got nearly 30 years of experience working in the heritage sector, both in the voluntary and private practice, and has taught at the Universities of London and Manchester, and is author of a number of books on Anglo-Jewish history and heritage, including Companion Architectural Guides, Jewish Heritage in England and Jewish Heritage in Gibraltar. And a new edition of her guidebook, Jewish Heritage in Britain and Ireland, was published in 2015 by Historic England and is also available for signings after this event. So today's discussion has been organised in honour of the late historian Professor David Cesarani, and we will begin with reflections about his life uh, before discussing our panel's latest work in the context um, of David's utopian ideals to relations among Jews and between non-Jews and Jews in modern times. And I would say that everybody on this panel has been affected by David's life and work, either as a mentor, uh, as an inspiration, as a scholar, and as a colleague. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is um, hashtag LSE Lit Fest. I'd ask you to please put your phones on silent so as not to disrupt the event. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast um, later today. Um, and um, after the presentations from each of our panellists, there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers with you, the audience, and I hope we'll have a lively debate, uh, which will then be followed by signings. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to ask Sharman if she could start our presentations. Okay, um, thanks very much for asking me to, to take part in this. Um, and I've actually, first of all, I've got a few, um, well, some reflections about David, first of all, and then I'll talk about my work. So the first bit hasn't got any illustrations or slides, but the second bit has, so maybe if you could dim the lights when I give the word, as it were. Uh, in his obituary of David Cesarani in the Jewish Chronicle last November, David Herman wrote, he was the right man in the right place at the right time. When 
mine comes to be written, if anybody bothers to write it, and I know that Geoffrey Alderman has not only written his own obituary for the Times, but regularly sends in updates, after all the reasons, you can't be sure that they'll get it right, and none of us will be in a position to send in a correction when the time comes. Anyway, my obituary will probably read, she was the wrong woman in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now that the history of the 1980s historians is being written up prematurely, I'd like to set the record straight, something of which David himself would no doubt have approved. David was two years above me at St Anthony's College, Oxford, as a graduate student, so I was also one of the so-called young Turk Anglo-Jewish historians, the then rising generation who were challenging the allegedly apologetic history written by our elders and betters, the gentlemen, and they were all men, of that venerable Victorian hangover, the Jewish Historical Society of England. The Cecil Rolfs and Vivian Littmans of the 1950s were, it was claimed, fond of celebrating the contribution of Jews to British history in order to win acceptance in wider British society. The likes of David Cesarani, Tony Kushner, Brian Shiet, and David Feldman emerged in the 1980s and challenged them. David and the other young Turks, and I'll come back to myself in a moment, donned the mantle of the history workshop, the history workshop men of the 1960s, the disciples of the Marxist historian Eric Hobsbawm, nay Hobbs, uh, Hobbsborn, nay Hobbsbawm, because he was a, a refugee uh, of Polish-Jewish extraction. And its other disciples included Rachel Samuel, Bill Fishman, and self-styled lapsed Welsh Catholic um, Bill Williams. Of course, he was up in Manchester, which was then dismissed by metropolitan types as the provinces. I've come down from Manchester this afternoon. The History Workshop School preferred to write about the less salubrious side of 19th and 20th century history, the working class, immigrants, sweatshops, radical socialists, and prostitution. Concerning Anglo-Jewish history, the real turning point came, as is so often the case in Britain, with an American, Lloyd Gartner. I have to say it was Michael who asked me to take part in this. It's another American. Lloyd Gartner's seminal book, The Jewish Immigrants in England, 1870 to 1914, first appeared back in 1960. Talking of prostitution, or at any rate about women's history, the history of the 1980s historians is actually an object lesson in how the women are written out of history. There were hardly any women amongst the young Turks of the 1980s. Of the very few that there were, and I'm actually, um, I'm not going to embarrass Elaine, but <laughs> Elaine is one of them, and, and is Elaine Smith, and is here today, which was a nice surprise. But of the very few of them, and I'm sure Elaine would, would agree with me, I'm the only one, as far as I know, who actually stayed in academia, or rather in Jewish academia in the UK, or at least attempted to. I never succeeded in landing a proper job at a British, or indeed in any other university, and not for the want of trying. Without bitterness, I may say, for the first time in public, that all I have ever achieved in 30 years, somebody mentioned this 30 years, since being awarded my DPhil for what became my first book, Bolsheviks and British Jews, was an endless series of temporary academic posts. These never exceeded more than three years in duration, conveniently broken up um, by a month or two, just enough to prevent my claiming permanent employment at any institution, whether in London, University, Manchester University, or the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. I've been at all three. 
In fact, I only survived in academia at all by fundraising for my research projects and incidentally to keep myself employed. So I must be one of the original independent scholars, that is, academics on the margins of academia, the academics of no fixed address. Gosh, how Jewish. <laughs> I truly am a child of the Thatcher revolution in higher education. In a notorious speech in 1981, the year in which I graduated from UCL, the Minister for Employment, Norman Tebbit, anyone remember him? Some people do. Told the um, three million unemployed to get on your bikes. Well, I got on mine and have been pedalling furiously ever since. <laughs> In hindsight, I now conclude that I got written out of the 1980s Young Turk Revolution in Anglo-Jewish history simply because my face didn't fit. This was not just because it was a female face. Indeed, I can't really claim to be a feminist, at least not with a capital F. In fact, I, I was, and still am, a practicing Jew, not merely a cultural Jew. I don't just eat chicken soup, I eat kosher chicken soup. A Jewish woman who eats kosher and also has a copy of Ten Days That Shook the World and Leonard Shapiro's The Communist Party of the Soviet Union on her bookshelves. I never got uh, I've never gone around looking for sexism or anti-Semitism, even amongst Jews. But looking back, can't quite escape the impression that I was a victim of both, and especially from other Jews. When I was young, did I really say that? I suppose that it's time to say that, given that one of my contemporaries has already popped his clogs. Academic Jewish studies was populated by determinedly secular Jews. After all, my Rebbe was Shimon Abramsky, professor of Hebrew and Jewish studies at UCL. He was a great teacher and a great professor in intellect, not in stature, because he was actually very small. As an undergraduate, I took his pioneering course um, on the emancipation of the Jews in Europe. This is back in 1979-80. As his grandson Sasha has written in his delightfully affectionate memoir, Come Biography, The House of 20,000 Books, Professor Abramsky, because we students never addressed him as Shimon, was the rebellious son of, of, of Diane Yehiskel Abramsky of the London-based Din, the chief rabbi's ecclesiastical court. Thus he was descended, like his one-time hero, Karl Marx, from the most illustrious rabbinical families of Lita, of Yiddish-speaking Lithuania and Belarus. Like so many other Jewish intellectuals of his generation in Britain and France, America and Israel, Shimon chucked religion and became a communist. Some of his contemporaries became socialist Zionists. Yes, such a combination was and is still possible, and emigrated to Israel. His communist phase ended, as it did for so many, with the death of Stalin and the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. His fascination of modern Jewish history, especially Russian Jewish history, and the Yiddish-speaking cultural world from which he had sprung, his birthplace, that gigantic Jewish ghetto known as the Pale of Settlement that stretched from the Baltic to the Black Sea and destroyed by the Second World War, brought Schumann back to his Jewish roots. By and large, Jewish studies in the 1980s and well into the 1990s remained as a resolutely secular domain, a legacy of the 19th century Wissenschaftlicher Judentum, the scientific Judaism that accompanied the Haskalah, the parallel Jewish enlightenment of the, 18th, of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In Israel, it has, by and large, remained a secular endeavor to this day. I can't remember how many Jewish studies conferences I attended in the 1980s and 90s where non-Jewish food was served as the norm. Religion was an irrelevance, or so for a long time it seemed. 
Times have changed, and so have notions of utopia. I had to get that in. <laughs> the Soviet bloc crumbled, and the Iron Curtain came down. In the 1990s, nearly one million Jews emigrated from Russia, mostly to Israel, the largest migration of Jews since the days of my grandparents and of Sasha Abramsky's before the First World War. One third of European Jewry, some six million people, were annihilated in the Nazi Holocaust during World War II, and those who survived were permanently displaced from the lands of their birth. America and Israel became the twin pivots of the Jewish world. Today, migration into Europe is fueled by turmoil in the Arab Middle East. Comparisons of modern Muslim migration with the situation of Jewish refugees before the Second World War is facile in the extreme. To quote Julie Birchall in last week's Jewish Chronicle, there are many reasons why the Muslims are not the new Jews. But that is another subject for another occasion. Suffice it to say that religion, and especially its fanatical extremes, has returned with a vengeance. Social commentators, and doubtless in the fullness of time historians, are now obsessed with the politics of religion. The vacuum created by the bankruptcy of the age of ideological isms, liberalism, socialism, communism, Zionism, is being filled for some of today's young people by religious fundamentalism. The red flag of communism is being replaced by the black flag, not of anarchism, but of ISIS. Fundamentalism has affected all creeds, Christian Bible Belt America, Haredi Jewish Orthodoxy, and Wahhabi Islam. Extremism is fashionable. Someone should write a PhD on the link between fundamentalist religion and the color black, from the black habits of closed Catholic orders of nuns, through New England Puritans, black hat Jews, to Muslim women swathed in black hijabs, abayas, and niqabs. The arrival of, thousands of, of hundreds of thousands of Muslims in Europe has focused minds on this phenomenon. In Britain today, there are already 10 times as many Muslims as there are Jews, and the ratio is set to grow. Muslims are not coy about their identity. Used to living in a, in a majority Muslim, Islamic society, they see no need to hide their faith. Jews constitute about half of 1% of the population of the UK. Keeping a low profile is etched into our DNA. After 2,000 years of living in the hostile climate of European Christendom, the idea of a Muslim Murano, like the hidden Jews of the Spanish Inquisition, Murano being Portuguese, an abusive term for pig, is unthinkable. Religion and identity politics are no longer irrelevant and outdated. They demand, for better or worse, to be taken seriously. My first, academic, uh, my first academic foray into Jewish architecture, which is really supposed to be my subject, was a paper entitled Constructing Identity, Anglo-Jewry Anglo and Synagogue Architecture, that appeared in the journal Architectural History in 2002. My research in the 90s and 2000s would not have been possible without support of, as it was then called, English heritage. Whose heritage was the title of one conference organized by the Government Funded Conservation Agency Exactly who owned heritage in a multicultural society? Of what did that heritage comprise? How could post-war first, first and second generation immigrants, predominantly from the former colonies of the British Empire, relate to the castles, cathedrals and stately homes that made up most of what then constituted heritage with a capital H? Surely heritage also included industrial archaeology, factories and slum housing. These were questions that also exercised David Cesarani and Tony Kushner. Indeed, Tony organized the first ever UK conference 
on the future of Jewish heritage at Southampton University in 1990. He edited a collection of essays on the subject to which David and some of the other young Turks contributed. I wrote my very first paper on Jewish architectural heritage for it. That's the preamble. I don't know if I've got time to say anything about books. But, uh, <laughs> five minutes. Okay then, so I don't know if you can put the lights down. Um, where's the... How do I get into the... Um, how do I get into the PowerPoint from here? Where's <laughs> uh, the PowerPoint? Well, that's mine there. Yeah, that one. That's it. Can we make it through the screen? That's it. Great, thank you. So, so much for reminiscences. You probably uh, really want to hear about something about my books, or maybe you don't, I don't know. My latest two books are the culmination of a project that goes back to the mid-90s, and of a personal passion for the protection of our historic synagogues and sites which dates back even earlier to the to late 1980s. The survey of the Jewish built heritage in the UK and Ireland visited some 350 synagogues built before the Second World War, Jewish cemeteries and other buildings of Jewish interest all over England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, North and South, the Channel Islands and the Isle of Man. And it was made possible largely through the support of the Heritage Lottery Fund and English Heritage. That project resulted in the publication of, of Jewish Heritage in England, which is not that one, an architectural guide by English Heritage, which featured a number of heritage trails in London, Manchester, Birmingham, Brighton. Um, and that was published in, in 2006. Um, and it was designed to make the little known Jewish heritage in this country more accessible to the, both the Jewish and the general public. And the book, I have to say, was quite successful. The first print run sold out within three months and it had to be reprinted. And last year, a second revised edition, which are updated and expanded, um, version was published, this time by Historic, uh, Historic England, because English Heritage has undergone this name change. Again, another story. A spin-off publication, a spin-off project, led, led to the publication in 2007, the following year, after the first edition, of a companion guidebook, Jewish Heritage in Gibraltar, which examined the fascinating historic synagogues and cemeteries on the rock, a British enclave since 1704. Their unique on the continent survived unscathed the ravages of the Second World War. Today, Gibraltar's 600 strong and vibrant Jewish community retains close links with the UK. My big book, the Yale book, was published in, in 2011 by Yale. It's a comprehensive history, mainly architectural, but inevitably also social, of the synagogue in this country, a subject that had never been attempted before. It utilises research carried out for the original survey, but goes beyond it, looking both at lost synagogues, drawing on archive sources, um, as, um, especially visual material, maps, architectural drawings and old photographs, as well as contemporary, um, as, as existing stamp buildings and contemporary synagogues. Um, oh, that's, that's a picture of a contemporary synagogue of the 1960s building in the former Carmel College in Oxfordshire. And I also included a chapter on stained glass, which is all illustrated in full colour. And if you've got time, I've, I've taken just one theme from the book, um, but I don't know if there's time to talk about that. I was going to talk about Orientalism in 19th century symbol architecture. Go but you may want me to carry. Oh, yes? You can do it. Okay. okay, so I just, one strand. I mean, the book has got, it's basically chronological, it looks at Georgian, Victorian, 20th century, and contemporary synagogues. So I decided what would be interesting and perhaps a little bit provocative to talk about today in this kind of forum. 
So I've taken a little, a little bit of the, the section on Orientalism. In synagogue architecture, Orientalism enjoyed a vogue all over Europe in the second half of the 19th century. The style was really pure, but an eclectic mix of Moorish, Mooresque or Saracenic, Islamic, Byzantine, and even Assyrian or Indian-inspired styles, sporting domes, turrets, and minarets. It made a confident statement of newly emancipated Jews' supposedly Eastern origins. The term Orientalism itself was never used at the time. Professional, professional journals and the press characterized such synagogues as Moresque, Saracenic, or Byzantine. From the early 19th century, the Orient became a theme in literature and art. And the Israeli urban historian Yehoshua ben Arieh has written, to a large extent, the attraction of the East and its exotic image was a product of European Romanticism. But Orientalism flourished long after Romanticism had waned. Only in the late 20th century did Orientalism become a fashionable label for the 19th century fascination with the Orient, and one that has acquired pejorative overtones. According to the Palestinian-born intellectual Edward Said and his school, Orientalism was simply a patronizing pastiche inflicted on colonial peoples, in particular the Arabs, by European imperialists. Certainly, by the end of the 19th century, it had become mixed up with racial stereotypes about North Africa and the Middle East, regions peopled in the Western, the Occidental imagination, by indolent, sensual, cruel, and materialistic folk who were culturally inferior to Europeans, notions in which the Jews, deemed the Asiatics of Europe, could not escape. Said conspicuously failed to notice the irony that European Jews were as much the victims of this train of thought as were Middle Eastern Muslims. When Oriental style first emerged for synagogues in Germany from the 1830s, it was considered appropriate for and imposed on Jews by state authorities and their Christian architects. The fashion began with the interior of the Dresden synagogue in the 1830s by the prestigious German Protestant architect Gottfried Zemper. In Zemper's mind, and in that of many of his contemporaries, Jews were linked with the Arab world of North Africa and the Middle East. Yet by the end of the century, Orientalism had been taken up with enthusiasm by Jewish communities all over the continent as a badge of emancipated pride. The Berlin Temple, shown here on Oranienburgstrasse, became the most celebrated expression of Orientalism in synagogue architecture in the second half of the 19th century. The synagogue on Oranienburgstrasse, designed by another German Protestant architect, Ed Edward Knoblach, was the largest synagogue in the world when completed in 1866. It could hold 3,000 people. The huge gilded dome became a prominent city landmark. It was reputedly modelled on John Nash's Brighton Pavilion. Key elements of the front elevation were to be replicated in many lesser synagogues all over Europe and beyond well into the 20th century. The triple arcade entrance porch, flanked by a pair of turrets over the stairwells, topped by turrets with bulbous domes. The fashion for minarets in 19th century synagogue architecture was probably really started slightly earlier, again by von Forster at the vast Doheny Temple, um, or the, I've got two minutes. <laughs> uh, right, okay, um, well, it's, it is a sort of a paper, so <laughs> I'd have to stop if I've only got two minutes or uh, I'll continue to the end. Perhaps <laughs> we can just come back to yeah, um, in the utopianism at the end when there's some questions answered. Right, I'll tell you what, I'll read the last paragraph. Right, I'll read the last paragraph. I was going to talk about um, the more west style and the Alhambra. 
and the influence of Armstrong architecture, and I was going to talk about um, Toledo, and I was going to talk about about some examples in Britain, uh, in London and Liverpool. And, and then I ended up at the end, so I've got lots of nice slides, which I, <laughs> which I want to show you. Uh, hang on a minute. Uh, right, so there you are. There's a um, British Oriental synagogues. I hope not recorded this bit. The forms and styles of Orientalist synagogues were seldom textbook copies of known buildings of the East. They were rather pattern book concoctions deriving from a plethora of sources. At Bradford's Reform Synagogue, shown here, we find arcading and cusping and lobed horseshoe arches all inspired by Moorish Spain. Mamluk Ablak stripes, that's the, black, um, the uh, red and yellow striping, um, light and dark horses and the brickwork, and uh, also this kind of cresting on the roofline. Uh, Mashrabiya lattice work, which is an Arabic term, um, on the Ark, which is found in, in Egyptian mosques, um, is found in Bradford, shown here and also in, uh, in Manchester, which I would have shown earlier. Um, and towers and domes based on, on a Turkish minarets. Assyrian-style turrets, oh, here we have, that's, um, that's the Mashrabiya work at Bradford, and all kinds of things. Um, and back at Bradford, that's what I wanted to say about Bradford, we even find an ark that owes more to the Taj Mahal and Bright Pavilion, again, than to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Today, in a multicultural society where other immigrant groups can claim more immediate links with the East than can European Jews, the 19th century fashion for Orientalism in synagogue architecture strikes one as slightly ironic. The Bronsbury Synagogue, shown here, with its copper-covered onion domes and horseshoe arcades, is now described as the premier Shia mosque in the city, the city of London. As the current mosque-building boom alters the skyline of British cities, it requires a leap of imagination to understand why Victorian Jews preferred supposedly Eastern styles of architecture. Dome synagogues, although never, never with minarets, were built in Muslim countries based on local forms. But in the context of 19th century Europe, the point of such exotic styles was that they were demonstrably different. Synagogues in Oriental style could not be mistaken for churches. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. David DeVries, if you'd like to. Good afternoon. Uh, we're now moving from the synagogues to the workplaces. Um, my name is David DeVries. I'm a historian at the Labour Studies Department at Tel Aviv University. And I would like uh, to begin saying a few words uh, about David Zarani. Um uh, for me, uh, the writings of uh, David Cesarani uh, were influential, um, mainly from the point of view of uh, the analysis of the relations between uh, British society and, 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 and British Jews. Um, uh, unfortunately, only uh, uh, one of his books has been translated into Hebrew, that is the uh, book on uh, Major Ferrand's head. Um, which I think is, a, is an important book for uh, Israeli historians, and not only uh, for uh, British historians, because it uh, uh, describes and analyzes, uh, and analyzes, uh, analyzes uh, very uh, uh, deeply. Excuse me. Um, the fan. If you yeah. if you speak to the microphone, yeah. I think that okay. should solve the problem. Do you need it? Do you need it? It's, no? it's okay. No, if you just speak to me. 
So the, the Major Franz book is important for Israeli historians because it touches upon the complexities of the relationship between the uh, British authorities in Palestine and, and, and the uh, and Palestinian society and the Jewish uh, polity in particular. And it, uh, um, um, not only in the political sense, but also in terms of relations between uh, the British authorities and, and society and civil society uh, at large. And, and in, in this uh, way, I would like to connect uh, to my, uh, the book that I've, uh, I've just published on uh, um, strike action and nation building, labor unrest in Palestine and Israel from 1899 to 1951. So uh, uh, my book is uh, actually the context of the book is uh, the relationship uh, between uh, the British colonial government and, and, uh, and Palestinian society, Jewish, Arabs, uh, uh, civil societies, and the uh, complexity of, I would say, uh, two sides or two characteristics of the presence of the British in Palestine. And this is, on the one hand, a lot of friction, a lot of uh, military daily friction in terms of uh, 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 regime and, and society, and on the other hand, uh, uh, emphasis of the British government on development of uh, 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 actually intervention in civil society in a variety of projects that you uh, you may well uh, uh, be um, acquainted with. So, um, the um, uh, starting point of my book on the strikes was that there is um, a problem, with a historiographical problem, I would say that, is um, the colonial perspective of the history of uh, Mandate Palestine and the perspective of the national conflict have been so uh, predominant that um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, research has still to be done uh, in questions which relate to social history. In other words, these perspectives of the, um, uh, of the, co the colonial perspective and the uh, uh, national conflict perspective uh, actually neglected uh, social history and from my point of view as a labor historian of questions relating to how ordinary people actually experienced the huge transformation that Palestine, Palestine has been undergoing during the mandate period. Now, uh, there are many things to be said about this historiographical neglect and the amount of work which is still waiting for us as social historians of uh, mandate Palestine, but I would like to concentrate or to focus now on one thing which is very, very important in terms of my book, and it, and it is that uh, uh, society in Palestine can be characterized as, ha is, as uh, producing a lot of what I would call social noise. There's a lot of social friction, which is not only uh, friction between government and society, and it's not only friction between Arabs and Jews, things which are really important, very important. I'm not saying that I'm uh, 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 producing any alternative explanations, but there's a lot of friction which is economic, which is social, it is workplace based, it is labor market based, which hasn't been uh, 
uh, uh, really research, and this uh, connects very strongly to the economic experience of of of, uh, of Palestinian society as a society of uh, of immigrants in terms of, uh, of 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 Jews and also of Arab immigration, but also in terms of uh, 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 the uh, Palestinian society which has been there and has been uh, undergoing a variety of social processes. And my book uh, it focuses on the, on the Jewish polity uh, uh, because uh, most of the strikes actually happened in the Jewish sector, in the Jewish part of, uh, of society. Um, so before I will uh, connect the book to uh, the question of utopia, I would like to say a few words about why I did uh, why did this research in the first place, okay? Um, when I'm talking about social noise, you have to think about the following uh, um, facts. And this is that during the 30 years of the mandate period, okay, uh, especially between 1920 and 1947, there have been something like 2,000 strikes. Okay, strikes, labor strikes, uh, 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 labor disputes that are actually strikes, not just labor disputes, which are not turning into strikes, but real strikes, okay? Some of them very short, I would say most of them very short, but at least the, uh, uh, I've, uh, uh, quantitatively we, we could say that there were at least 2,000 cases of strike action. Now this is a lot in any comparative uh, uh, in any comparison with, with, with uh, for instance, with European countries, uh, uh, with European uh, countries that have similar economies or, or smaller economies, and and uh, and there are few, there are many things to be said about this. This is about the book. Uh, the book is about this. But I would like to uh, emphasize a, a few characteristics of this surge, of this 2000 uh, uh, strike surge. First of all, this is a totally new phenomenon. In other words, there were no strikes during the 19th century in Palestine. It's a new phenomenon. Um, we can say a lot about how it came over to Palestine, okay? But this is the, the novelty of, of the phenomenon is very important. It's, it's very much part of industrialization, very much part of urbanization, uh, and this is very important. Secondly, um, the, the strikes surge dramatically. In other words, uh, they already begin to surge in the 1920s, but they see a, a, a further surge during the 1930s, and they reach their apex in, 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 in the 1940s during the Second World War. Okay? So uh, in terms of larger Jewish history, this is a very interesting phenomenon of, 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 uh, of, of how to explain the relationship between the war and this, uh, and this peak of strikes. So this is, uh, it's a novel phenomenon. It, it, it actually takes off very seriously. And the most important thing in terms of my book, it is a phenomenon that it is getting routinized. In other words, in other words uh, slowly but surely, uh, every employer, every workplace expects that strikes will uh, happen in, in, in the workplace. And uh, it is becoming, uh, the, the phenomenon of strike in Mandan Palestine is becoming, a, 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 my, my teacher here at the LSC, James Joel, would say an unspoken assumption of both the British government and the, and the uh, uh, private Jewish employers. Now, in terms of historiography, the 
analysis of this surge, of this novelty, and of this routinization of the social phenomenon of strike, in terms of historiography, the main explanation was, were given, first of all, uh, that these strikes are connected to labor Zionism. In other words, to the attempts of the labor movement and the Istadro, the, the roof organization of the unions, to actually to bring about segregation of the labor market along ethnic and national lines, okay? And, and the, my main point in this, uh, in reaction to this historiography, is that this explains only very little amount of the strikes, okay? This national explanation is important, it's there, it's very much part of the orchestration of strikes by the Istadrut, but it doesn't explain the whole phenomenon. In, moreover, in the 1930s, strikes which are related to national segregation of the labor market, that is separation between Jews and Arabs, actually disappear. The association disappears. In the 1940s, it's not there anymore. The second explanation, or the second uh, aspect of the historiography that dealt with this social noise, was that it is connected to party politics. In other words, if the first explanation was connected with nationalism, the national conflict, and all the, the history of, of the Zionist Palestinian conflict, uh, the second explanation is more political. Okay? And, the, and the main uh, argument there was that strikes were used by the hegemonic labor party within the Eastern Group and later within the Zionist movement, the same labor party that actually uh, was the first government of the Israeli uh, 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 government in the, uh, after the 48 war, was the use of the labor party of strikes in order to counter the challenge of the revisionist right, okay? So the way you counter the growing power of the right in Jewish society in Palestine was to control the labor market, was to control the workplaces through unions, through all kinds of activities, and of course through strikes. Now, I do not uh, uh, um, negate this argument as, as well as I do not negate the earlier argument. What I say is that they, they, are, not they are not explaining all the phenomenon. Moreover, they are very much focused on the 1930s, and they are very much part of the conflict, the party, the political conflict between the revisionists and labor during the 1930s. They are hardly there in the 1920s, and they totally disappear in the 1940s when you have the peak of the strikes, okay? So I'm saying that this historiography is not, uh, is not enough, and I would like to, uh, um, um, to say two things which I think are very important to, for understanding uh, what I've done in the book. First of all, uh, in order to understand strikes during, or the surge of strikes, we first have to understand that despite the enormous British intervention in society, in civil society in Palestine, there was hardly any labor legislation. In other words, um, the, um, there is no uh, protection of workers in law, okay? And there is no uh, reference to the issue of strike as a social right. Okay, or to strike as a legitimate weapon or lever in the workplace. Okay, so in this context of um, the absence of any labor legislation, 
there was a lot of room for, for, for friction between uh, uh, workers and, and employers. And this connects with my second point, and this is that most of the 2,000 strikes which I've found in the archives, okay, in the archives and in the press, uh, actually happened in the private sector, okay? When we think about Zionist history, we immediately think about a public Zionist sector or a public British sector, but in fact, most of the Jews and most of the Arabs employed in Paris and during the Mandate period were actually working in the private sector. This was uh, the workplaces owned and managed by uh, uh, Jewish employees, Jewish private employees. And uh, when I give this very due emphasis to the uh, presence of private employment uh, in the economy, uh, I mean that private employers, in contrast to what we think historiographically, uh, were very powerful. There was no collective bargaining, hardly any collective bargaining, there were hardly any uh, uh, laws, as I said, that protected workers, and uh, in terms of dismissal, in terms of rights, in the many, many things that actually pinpoint to the uh, comparative power of employers vis-a-vis -vis workers and vis-a-vis -vis uh, what we imagined as a power, power of the Institute and the labor movement. The main power of the labor movement was much more political and cultural and much less social and economic as, as this uh, will show. So my argument in terms of connecting the book with the question of utopia is that I see the surge of the strikes and the, 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 the multitude of strikes, okay, or the, the enormity of this phenomenon, <coughs> it's a historical phenomenon, of a process that uh, uh, seeks to uh, balance the power uh, in the workplace and the power of workers uh, uh, in front of employers. And the, 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 this quest to balance the power between labor and employers was partly orchestrated by the Estatut, but only partly so. A lot of strikes happened despite the Estatut, despite its <coughs> attempts to restrain the strike action. And, uh, and this is something which, which features in the book very widely. So, uh, when we uh, look more deeply into the 2,000 cases of strike action that I, I found in the archives, what we see, I would say, and this connects to the question of utopia, is three main characteristics that I would like to emphasize. Okay? First of all, strikes are um, momentary disruptions of workplace routines. This, this is their main meaning. This is what they do. They disrupt the daily routine. And um, um, they, in this disruption of daily routines of workplace action or, or work production, or in whatever sector that they happen, they contain a lot of enthusiasm, they contain a lot of energy, and um, especially in the moment of the breakout of the strike. Okay? Uh, one uh, theoretician called this moment of uh, uh, the beginning of strike action uh, as uh, militant optimism, okay? And when I look very deeply into the stories of these 2,000 strikes, I see a lot of this energy, a lot of this enthusiasm uh, of, uh, of the ethos of disrupting the routines in order to bring a change in the balance of power between workers and employers, okay? This is one point. 
The second point is that most of the strikes, which I, which I found in the archives, tell you that there are, there are actually momentary moments of collective actions, of collective actions which are based on, on, on solidarity, which is the main oppositional resource that workers have in the workplaces, okay? The ability or the capacity to organize solidarity, to, to, to bring workers to action, which is very problematic, it's very dangerous because of the absence of labor laws, because of absence of any protection from dismissal. And in other words, strike action is, is very problematic, it's very risky. And by the, by the way, one of the reasons why we find hardly any strikes in the British sector, railways, oil extraction, things like this, is because uh, the British opposed strike action and they threatened uh, the strikers with actually with uh, uh, exiling them from uh, uh, Palestine. So um, these momentary moments of collective action and the recruitment or the employment or the mobilization of solidarity is very important in the analysis of the strike themselves, okay? And I would like to mention here uh, one uh, type of strikes which are quite rare, but they are very much connected with this uh, way of seeing strikes, and these are joint strikes between Jews and Arabs. Okay, so because of this emphasis on the enthusiasm of the uh, of, of collective action and this employment of uh, oppositional resources, you find strikes that actually overcome national and ethnic divides, okay? There are rare cases, cases. if you want, I will uh, expand on them later, uh, but they, they happen, and especially they happen during the Second World War, where you have many Arabs and Jews cooperating in the military, in the, in the British army, and, uh, and also in other workplaces, uh, in the bureaucracy, uh, but also in, in, in other cases, uh, in, in many in the urban centers. Okay, so this is my second point. The, sec the third point is that um, in the cumulative effect, I would say, of these 2,000 strikes, what you see is that they accumulate or they uh, 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 gather into something which is not ideologically phrased in any way, okay? But there is a larger atmosphere that this quantity and this ritualization of a, this social phenomenon or this uh, becoming of the phenomenon uh, uh, an unspoken assumption, uh, it, 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 it uh, gathers into um, uh, workers actually saying to the government and to society and to Jewish employers and even to the organizers of the, of the unions which are sometimes oppose their actions, that uh, strike is not only a social act, but should be a social right, okay? So this uh, notion uh, that strike should be in, in, in one way be legislated, okay, even not formally, and it is not legislated until the 1950s when you have already an Israeli government is very important in terms of the, the accumulation of strikes. So, um, what is the usefulness of the, of the concepts of utopia for this description or this analysis or these characteristics of strike action? The utopian dimension of the strikes, the way I see it, even though I didn't write about utopia 
uh, uh, directly in this book, is not in producing a blueprint for an alternative society. Okay? This is not what it, uh, it amounts to. What it does amount to is it's a form of behavior, it's a ritual that is becoming more and more a ritual, which is mainly exploratory. It tests all the time the power of the employers and also the power of the workers to withstand the employers. And the way I see it is that they are, especially when they break out, and especially when you look at the huge power that you need in order to maintain the strike action throughout the negotiation on agreements, I see them as momentary spaces of action and solidarity that actually prefigure a situation in which the power between labor and employers will be balanced, okay? That anticipates a different situation in which uh, the, uh, the balance of power between workers and, 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 and labor uh, uh, will, be, will be different. Now, the, 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 uh, these imaginary of spaces of action and solidarity, most of them are not successful, okay? But the importance of looking at them is that they tell you a lot, I'm, I'm thinking now, they tell you a lot about how ordinary people actually experienced what it meant to be a worker in this uh, society during this period. Okay, thank you. Michael Berkowitz. Okay, my, my last correspondence with David Cesarani is from September, you see September of this past year, as we were making arrangements for this event. At that time, two of David's books were in production. Disraeli, the political artist, maybe it has a different title now, Don, you can tell us, um, being published with Yale University Press as part of the Jewish Lives series and also Final Solution, The Fate of the Jews with London Millen, which is, of course, out, and hopefully it will be, um, it will be around. Well, it was, of course, supposed to be an opportunity for us and colleagues to talk about and bring some attention to our recent books. I've got to say that we also really like the idea of coming here. That is, we like this event, which we had attended, but never actually presented at ourselves. And being somewhat outside of LSC, although both of us within the structure of the University of London, we tend to idealize this place, think that, well, this is a place where everything works. And uh, uh, we hold it up to a certain ideal that we would not always you know, put our own institutions on. So we are absolutely thrilled with the possibility of taking part um, in this event. And, um, it's just very sad that David himself isn't here. Well, David was unquestionably the most important public intellectual in Anglo-Jewish academia for decades. David articulated a most forceful and informed perspective of the meanings of Jewish history and historical context of contemporary politics for the Jewish and non-Jewish public of Britain. I wish in particular to note David's energy, courage, creativity, and persistence in attempting to integrate Jewish history 
and Anglo-Jewish history into British academia overall. That is, I think one of the things that he was after was not to talk about contributions or just to sort of get the history right, but to actually integrate Jewish history into British history itself and to turn it into something different other than what it was. And I think if he had been around for a longer time, this is what eventually would have been accomplished. Of course, I can't say for sure. Well, concerning the theme of this year's festival, utopianism, situating our own work and the work of our dear colleagues in this context actually seemed to us to be relatively simple, if not an almost laughing matter. That is, who in the world of Jewish studies doesn't deal with utopianism or utopias in some way? It seems we can't possibly avoid it. David began, as did I, as a historian of the early Zionist movement. Again, you really can't quite get out of utopianism in that way. Both of his current works, the Disraeli biography and the comprehensive history of the Holocaust, are enmeshed in textures of utopia and dystopia, depending on the eye of the beholder or beholders. Well, moving on to my own work, perhaps it is a bit more slippery for my subject that is on Jews and photography to put it in this context, but I would like to, in particular, stress a couple, um, stress a couple points. And I will say in particular that although it's very easy to see this as Jewish contributions to something, in this case, photography, I really very strongly object to that. That is, I think the main reason for writing this book is because I felt that as I got deeper and deeper into this subject, which I didn't believe I would be writing on and dealing with Jews and photography generally, that the whole history of photography looked very different when one begins to consider the fact of ethnic difference and how this played out within the field itself. But within this, I'd like to note two particular points. There is, there is an assumption of universalism in photography, particularly, I'd say, the history of photography overall. That is the notion of its overarching accessibility and inclusiveness, which is part of the reason why its social specificity or specificities have been called into question, even though people have looked at it from the perspective of sexism and various other isms, including imperialism and colonialism. But for some reason, despite the fact that it was so heavily overpeopled by Jews, historians just didn't seem to pay any attention to it or to just want to dismiss this completely. Well, I do not believe, though, that there is any such thing as a Jewish eye or a Jewish way of taking a photograph, which I think is an utterly absurd concept. But I think due to their historical circumstances, Jews had different relationships to photography than the surrounding population. I think in large part, this had to do with the relationship of photography to respectability, which was highly problematic. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about. And this is what inclined Jews to take this up for, as a vocation or also allowed for a particular opening for them. 
and it meant that they were in the position to push the field forward time and time and time again. I'd say that it was, and in some ways, does remain the most democratic of the arts, and this, of course, also helps to explain the Jewish inclusion and prominence. Well, there's another aspect of utopianism in photography with respect to Jews that involves its social relations. And this is actually one of the very last things that David and I talked about. He actually attended a session that I gave at the Beyond Camps and Forced Labor Conference at the Imperial War Museum, where I actually talked about my own battle for just a small amount of restitution of Jewish colonial trust shares, which had been purchased by my great-great-grandfather. Um, and I've got to say, it was, uh, it was nice to have David enjoy that as much as, as much as he did. So I wanted to reflect just a little bit on that. Photography became a means for Jews to interact with others, often elites, in a fundamentally different way. Portrait photography, in particular, required a level of intimacy with one's sitter. That is, if you are a serious photographer before the modern age, you actually have to position your sitter, and you adjust lights, and very often, you touch the person. You touch their head. You shift their shoulders. You touch their skin. It's, in some ways, a very intimate process. So the fact that Jews were very often portrait photographers for people such as royals everywhere, I'd say everywhere outside of the Ottoman Empire, where the photographers tended to be Armenians, for the same reason why Jews in Europe tended to be photographers, but it means that very interesting and sometimes highly unusual relationships developed between various elites and their Jewish photographers due to this. So I argued that we can find a number of instances of unusually close and convivial relations between various royals and their photographers, and it inferred the possibility of a cross-class and cross-difference humane interaction with those whom royals and other elites would not usually be expected to associate. Well, um, the very last thing I want to say before I start bombarding you with, um, with a number of images is that I think one of the, David and I shared two things in particular. I mean, actually our kids are right around the same ages and that's particularly difficult to talk about, but um, we both have very strong opinions. Um, and not necessarily the same opinions, but we're both known for having very, very strong opinions. Um, we also are both children of the working class. That is, if some of you know David personally, you know that his father was used to joke about his father being an artisan. His father was a hairdresser. My father was a metal fabricator. So boy, um, one of the things that we did not say to other people was how we would lay into our fellow scholars when they would talk about the working class when they didn't have a clue what the working class was about. They had no idea what it was like to have a father or mother who came home exhausted and just dropped from the kind of work day that they had or the kind of attitudes that they had encountered. So I've got to say there weren't very many of us in our profession who had had that kind of intimacy with a different class than, um, than many others. 
And there's something else that I would like to, and I think this is one of the things that sort of connected David to my own teacher, um, George Mossy. George Mossy was a great believer in the significance of friendships and personal friendships, and he tended to be a very sort of loyal person. Now, this is very difficult in the world of academia. We've competed against each other for years, and is there aren't enough jobs. Charmin's applied for the same job. Mark's applied for the same job. Joanne's applied. We've all applied for the same jobs for years and years and years. It's kind of amazing that we could still talk to each other and support each other in the ways that we have. So I think in some ways, our utopianism is what we maintained in aspects of our personal relations, which we'll never let go of. Okay, let me... Uh, um, I just want to get bombarded with some of these images here. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not from here. Um, but I have the correct accent for talking about photography because I'm from Rochester, New York. And anyone who ever talks about photography should talk in the thickest Rochester accent possible or else you're not doing it the right way. It's Rochester. Rochester. It's Eastman Kodak. And if one more person tells me that Linda Eastman is part of the Eastman family, I'll throw something at them. It's completely untrue. It's the craziest, craziest idea in the world. George Eastman was not Jewish, and he had, didn't have children, but that's another, that's another story. Okay, I want to show you a couple things that aren't in the book. I didn't find out until after I published my book that I'm part of the story. My own great-great-grandfather's work is in the Royal Collection. It's actually in the Royal Collection, which I didn't know. Uh, um, there are at least a dozen works of my own great-great-grandfather, who was a photographer and czarist Russian. As I said, this is really the last thing that David and I have talked about. These are a couple of these images. But this is actually my great-grandparents, who we actually just learned were murdered in Lithuania. Uh, this is my great uh, my great-grandfather, Menachem Mendel Burke, and this is his wife, Fania Burke. Fania was the daughter of Wolf Yazvoin, who my father was named after, who was a court photographer to the Tsar. So this is, uh, again, an interesting part of the story and how I got into this. This is actually my grandfather, who was born in Lithuania, who came to the United States in, um, in 1907. And here you see, he looks like a bourgeois gentleman. He wasn't a bourgeois gentleman. He was an extremely poor tailor. I'm sure this wasn't his own clothes. It wasn't his own ring. He never could have dressed like this. But of course, this is part of the history of photography as well. I think they probably met because this good-looking guy, who was also a very sweet guy, had come to get his photograph taken, his portrait taken, in the family's photography studio in Kovno, which is literally right in the middle of Kovno, or Countess Lithuania. Okay, this is getting back. I'm literally one person away, family-wise, from these rather interesting pictures of the Tsar's own family, extended family, again, some of these that are here. Now, there are two reasons why they're here in the Royal Collection. On the one hand, we know that the royals were all related. So, and it is before World War I. So in some ways, these were also family pictures of the royal family. But then these have also come into the Royal Collection because as we get more and more of these sort of lovely oligarchs who have come to this country, they tend to give um, gifts to the royal family. And this has included works of art 
and photography albums, and some of the work of my own great-great-grandfather has been included in these photography albums, which have now been bestowed on the royal family. Well, I actually want to mention uh, um, a couple other things I didn't include. Uh, um, there was a great graphic, uh, a graphic artist, actually Charmin has written about, you can actually say a little bit more, uh, about, about the games, or Gamza, who became Games family that is this great artist whose father was actually a photographer, but I think he actually did things that were really unusual in picturing Jews. Here you see actually quite a modern picture of traditional Jews making this transition from Russia to London. And one of the points that I tried to make in the book, um, and this is this is this is Joseph Gamza, who is actually the father of this great uh, graphic artist in Naomi Games, has uh, uh, very kindly let me use these let me use these photographs. But the really important point is almost all of the Jews in photography in places like London did not learn it here. That is, they already had it in Russia before they came. Well. How is it that I set myself on this course that I did in terms of talking about Jews and photography? Why do I think this is such a big subject that everybody else has ignored or does not pay attention to? And I'll give you a couple of the reasons that this, this is George Eastman, who is not a terribly nice man and not terribly nice to Jews in other ways. But George Eastman thought that the best photographer working in London and possibly in the world is someone almost nobody's heard of unless you've read my book, which I hope you have, that is, he thought that Nahum Lubishez was the best portrait photographer who had taken the best photograph of him. He was not only a portrait photographer, he was a scientist in a way, although he had no formal education that I could find. Um, he was a great demonstrator for Eastman Kodak Company going to the various cities in Europe. But one of the ways that he ties to our theme of utopianism is um, Lubishez was an anarchist. And I think, you know, a certain kind of utopian anarchist was not exactly enthralled with the Bolsheviks. And there are some rather interesting pictures in his collection. Here's Lubitsch's himself. But he was discovered as this great figure by someone actually from UCL uh, originally, that is, um, Kenneth Meese, who became the great head of research at Eastman Kodak Company, who also greatly prized um, Lubishez, and here's Lubishez with his family in his studio in Harrow. Yeah, I'm just gonna, uh, uh, I'm just gonna flip through, but one of the things I found fairly early on was as early as 1860, it was assumed that one's, um, one's photographer um, just could be a Jew, and there were never any questions raised if one's photographer happened to be a, a Jew, even though some people that started writing me saying they think I've overstated the numbers and all this kind of thing, but I think we have so little sense of the field. That is, there's almost nothing along the lines of a reliable survey of who were these people, how many were there, but I think we can find that there was never any block on Jews at all. Okay, what I want to do is run through a, again, sort of bombard you with images, but just, just um, so it means buy the book and you'll have them all explained. Let me see if I go through. Here's Stefan Laurent, and I'm going to be referring to him in the very end. This is the editor of Picture Post, who was denied naturalization. Um, in 1940, wound up leaving for the United States. He did not simply run to the United States because he was afraid of the Nazi invasion. This I'm arguing very, very strongly against. This is from, uh, from his work in Lilliput, and there you know Hertzfeld, and um, I'm showing you works of Eric Salomon. I just showed something of Dorothy Bohm. Um, Barnett, I've identified as a very important photographer, another very important person. I just showed a little bit of my family here. Um, 
very crucial figure is, um, is Helmut, I'm sorry, I won't be showing him. This is John F. Kennedy, I'll talk about just one second. But Helmut Gernsheim, it's not him, Zoltan Glass, picture of <laughs> Green, wonderful, absolutely wonderful and very smart woman, completely in control of the use of her own image. Okay, um, here we have the pictures on the cover of my book, but not really. Um, this is Stefan Laurent and Winston Churchill, but Churchill's shown alone in the book. Okay, um, again, going through very quickly. Why am I showing you the Queen? Showing you the Queen and uh, Prince Charles and the Queen here. Um, I had a very interesting experience. I finished writing the first version of the book in 2011, and I sat down and I wrote a letter to the Queen, as one does. And I said, I would really like to hear your thoughts about the photographer Barron, because he claimed in his autobiography that he's very friendly with you and... Um, and your husband, and I thought there was kind of a nice, like, homey quality to your photographs that he's taken of you. And I thought it was really quite extraordinary. She wrote me a letter, and she said, you know, or her, her lady said she doesn't comment on these things, she wishes me well, and all that. But she said, it is, it is suggested or advised that you contact the Duke of Edinburgh separately. Wow. <laughs> so I contacted the Duke of Edinburgh separately, and he invited me to Buckingham Palace to talk about Baron, who he described as his best friend. And it was an absolutely fascinating discussion. I've got to say, I write letters to people all the time. I ask people for money. I ask them for help. They never write back. Almost nobody writes. Actually, once they want Alan Sugar wrote back, not my thing, mate. You know, that was very nice. Most people don't respond. The Duke of Edinburgh responded and invited me to Buckingham Palace, which was incredible. Um, so I found that this little wacky idea I had of the closeness between the royals and their photographers was maybe not a figment of my imagination. So they actually started with this craziness with the Queen's photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz. But there was a connection between Baron and Snowden, although people told me there's nothing Jewish at all about Snowden. I found that wasn't true. That wasn't true about that wasn't true about Helmut Gernsheim, who was played a Jewish Jew. But this is where I want to uh, this is where I want to leave it. Oh, this is some great Snowden stuff. How do we believe who who do we believe when we listen to people? One of the people I wound up believing was Stefan Laurent for this, he told a wild story, and he left 13 tapes in the British Library. He told a wild story about him sitting in his house after he's been thrown out of Britain, and uh, um, this young man knocks on the door, and it's raining, and the young man comes in with a, with a overcoat over, you know, with a raincoat over his arm, and he says, tell me, Mr. Laurent, um, why, what was Mr. Lincoln doing in that theater on Good Friday anyway? And he said, well, I will tell you, Mr. Kennedy, that he wasn't a Catholic. It wasn't particularly meaningful for Abraham Lincoln. That's why he was in the theater. He said, we embraced, we sat down, we talked for hours. He said, John Kennedy used to visit me. We would go scuba diving. We would go on various vacations. Again, most people hearing this stuff would think it's ludicrous. It's absolutely crazy. Why would this guy be talking about this? He's just, as we say in America, totally bullshitting. I mean, how could he have this kind of relationship? My own advisor, who David also knew very well, George Mossy, had a similar relationship with John F. Kennedy. The guy would just show up, and they would go on vacations, okay? And that's, that's my, that's all I've got to say, 
There are reasons why we've said what we've said, why we believe what we believe, why we sort of support who we support, and I guess that's the reason why I'm happy to be doing this here for David. Thank you very much. Right, thank you very much. We've had three very different presentations, I think it's fair to say, from three very different speakers, all inspired, though, I think, by the fact that um, David's work um, as a historian, I think, started a revolution in the way that we treat Anglo-Jewish historiography. And I think we've also heard a lot about the importance of hidden history, the importance of our heritage of, of, um, of buildings and what they've become and, and thinking about that past. We've talked about disruptive labour and, and the importance of that period in 30s and 40s. Um, mandate Palestine. So again, it's uncovering a different kind of history, and we've heard about the. Um, we've had a, a, a very inspiring <laughs> range through photography and Jews, and also understanding a very different way of looking at the history of photography, which probably hasn't been treated as seriously beforehand. So I wonder if there are questions in the last 10-15 minutes from you to any members of our panel, and if you would like to say who you are and keep your question brief, I'd be grateful. Um, yes, a question from the... Could you take the microphone, sorry, could you just hang on a second while the microphone comes around to you because there is a podcast of this. Um, I just wanted to ask the first speaker who showed us a slide in her um, PowerPoint presentation of the synagogue the Oran in the or Oranian Berg Strasse in Berlin. Sorry, I forgot the pronunciation a little bit awry, but anyway, was that the synagogue that the future Kaiser Friedrich Wilhelm, um, who was very, was, um, very short-lived Kaiser in 1888, was that the one he visited in the early 80s to demonstrate publicly his abhorrence of anti-Semitism in, in the Second Reich at that time? Yes, I, I do believe it was. It was a very, I didn't have a chance to show the slides, but that building was, it opened in 1866, and it became, it was the largest synagogue in Europe, and it was immediately a symbol of the, you know, of, of Jewish emancipation. Although, interestingly enough, emancipation didn't officially come, really, until 1870 with the unification of Germany. But they, it, there was um, an illustration, um, an engraving which was done, which was reproduced in various journals, including the Illustrated London News, and that really kick-started the fashion for Orientalism in Britain. So it was a very well-known building. So it was used for public, like, civic events. Um, and again, you know, after, the, because the history of that building, of course, it was, it was burnt by the Nazis. There's a famous photograph of the flames coming out of the the, um, the dome um, was that, was that at the in, time, in, was, in 1938 at the, at the time of Kristallnacht yes. yes and of course now if, you've, if anyone has been to Berlin I mean the building the front of the building has been restored because basically all that survived was the vestibule and the sort of the, 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 the main facade um, and the back is just basically ruined but you can, get, you can get a sense of how big it was and how high it was uh, but you can see that golden dome all over the city basically and it has reverted to being a landmark building um, sort of a sim symbol of Jewish emancipation in Europe, which is why I showed it as the, as the slide for that. 
There was actually a yeah. very interesting project that was done in German universities of the architecture of German synagogues, which also sh where you can see 3D reconstructions. And what's extraordinary is it does actually show the uh, the amount of uh, the space that synagogues took in central public yes, places yeah. in, in German this was cities part and towns of it was and the villages. Physical expression and the of emancipation. Of that a, a building like coming out, literally coming out from the ghetto, from you know, like Rome, for example, um, raising the ghetto to the ground because Jews lived in ghettos uh, from the middle medieval period because of the, the Lateran councils, came out of the ghettos, and, and the 19th century is about the, sort of the struggle for emancipation. Uh, and of course, it comes in Germany by 1870 and in, in Italy, 1866, um, knocked down the ghetto and built a great big synagogue on, on, the, on the banks of the Tiber. And this, this was a symbol to, to compete with the church in the public space that you've got the, the Protestant church and the Catholic church and the synagogue. So, this is all about identity politics. I didn't have a chance. <laughs> so, yeah. There's a question there. If you just wait for the mic, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I was wanted to ask uh, Professor DeVeres. If, to what extent, the people, the, um, those Zionists who were arriving in the 30s, particularly from the, the socialists and the uh, people from the, the le on the leftist side, from the Bund, to what extent that they um, in incorporated the, the, the Palestinians, the Arabs who were there at the time, in, 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 in the labor movement? Um, and... Um, did any of this um, survive the, um, the events of, of 1948? Because t I would have thought it would have been a, a real chance for um, a, a socialist workers' movement to have actually created a paradigm for the communities to, to, to have existed. <clears throat> um, well, the short answer is no. Um, um, the... Uh, the labor movement in Palestine, the Zionist-oriented labor movement, one of its main flags is that it's uh, it, it's for Jews, okay, and the um, the um, the policy towards Arab unions or organization or by Arab workers uh, is that they, they should organize by themselves and create a kind of a superstructure, a federated. Uh, alliance between the Jewish unions and the Arab unions, which is something which is not an invention of the Zionist uh, labor movement because this is what was used to be the Ottoman structure. If you look at, for instance, at Saloniki, at Salonika, you have unions which are separated by ethnicities, by religion, by all kinds of, uh, 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 I would say, uh, separatist uh, organizations. But there is something interesting that's happening in the 1930s, is that you have communists in Palestine. And you have, uh, it's not a very strong party. Uh, it is uh, treated suspiciously, by the, of course, by the British, or uh, afraid of pol Bolshevization of Palestine. But there are German communists who are actually immigrating to Palestine during the 1930s because of the situation in, 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 in fascist Europe. So these uh, communists who are becoming very active in the workplaces, okay, some of them join the Istadot, which is a national organ Zionist organization, okay, but they go on being active in the Communist Party, which actually negates Zionism or negates Zionist solutions. And they do work on cooperation with Arabs. And this is one of the reasons, for instance, 
uh, why you find a, a cooperation between Jews and Arabs in the workplaces that are actually organized by communists, okay? These are not many strikes out of the overall number of strikes, okay? Uh, and of course there is the problem of the labor movement itself, the elite of the labor movement which opposes the communists, okay? So all the notions of the possibility of cooperation between uh, Arab and Jewish workers in the workplaces, in the in the unions, in, in the unions, very much uh, obstructed by the uh, national approaches. But there is activity there, and it is re I think it is under researched. Um, and I think during the 1940s, when you have more uh, joint Arab-Jewish strikes, you will find more communists involved in it, but not only communists. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, lady Dan, and then the gentleman with the red shirt behind her. Um, I, I want to start by saying I was at Madison, too, and oh. Mossy's name was just, <laughs> all you had to say was Mossy. Mm -hmm. um, the photographers here, I don't know if this was happening in, this, you know, in the States, we had a completely different social structure, but um, the beginning of the film, the whole film thing, and the Jews part of that and running Goldwyn and all, you know, all of that in the States and Hollywood. That just seems with photography to be a natural, you learn to frame the shot and then you get it moving. Can you say something about the move from the British photographers to the guys in Hollywood? Well, I, th I think just um, very generally speaking, I think that um, there is a lot more to be said about the Jewish engagement with the film industry here. And as a, one of the largest companies, it is Gaumont British, which used to be known as Gaumont Yiddish, um, specifically grew out of a family photography business in Paris. So you do have rather uh, direct connections. Say, if you look at some individuals, I mean, you could say, uh, just to give a couple of examples, people like Ernst Lubitsch, actually began as a photographer for the Mossy Publishing House. Um, and you can see in his early, his early silent films that he begins everything with a sort of still photography shot. Stanley Kubrick also began as a, um, began as a photographer. I think it's, it's actually very complicated. I think there are also connections in the technology, particularly dealing with color. Um, that is, there's much more relationship between Kodachrome, which I've done a lot of work with, and actually color film. Technology, so I think there are reasons why this seemed to fit into the world of um, film as well. But it's not always so. It's not always so direct. I'd say it's part of um, part of um, further work that I have that I plan. But it is. It's a question I get often, and, um, and I think it really it really is worth looking more closely into. Thank you. No question from the gentleman over there. Hello, uh, I'm Joe. I'm a student here. Um, so it's clear that you'll have particular interests within Jewish history, but when referring to the work of David Cesarani, you were all talking about him in terms of a trend that was going on in Anglo-Jewish history at the time. Um, and so I wonder, is it, is it possible to talk about trends in Jewish history um, now? And if so, is there a trend in Jewish history now? Oh, I, I think that there are there are a number of trends in uh, a number of trends in Jewish history, and I'd say something that I'm a part of is the attempt to look more seriously 
at visual sources. And um, I can tell you, it wasn't all that long ago when if one wanted to simply show slides, this is, you know, dating myself, that is when you had to bring a slide projector and a screen in order to show them, the Association for Jewish Studies went crazy and sort of came up with every reason in the world why it simply should not be the kind of thing that one does in the realm of Jewish studies. So it really wasn't all that long ago that this has really come into, um, come into this picture. But we can talk about all different strains in the story. And I'd say in some ways, we've reaped the benefits, the, the three of us have reaped the benefits of being on the cutting edge of things, and we've also taken our lumps for, um, for being on the cutting edge of things, which is not often enjoyable um, when one is sort of early to a certain um, early to a certain trend but there are it's sort of hard to characterize the different um, developments but I've got to say that the thing one of the things that David represented was this notion of having a more inclusive view and not discounting the significance of the national context and even regional context of whatever it is one is writing about and say in particular fields, this has revolutionized all kinds of areas. Say, the, the Hasidic movement is now looked at completely differently now that it's in its Polish context. But I think I'll turn it over to my colleagues to say a little more Yeah, about I, mean, I, this. I think that, uh, I think from where we were in the 1980s, I mean, I think Michael was right that, uh, you know, I think as I, I mean, I worked in Jewish art. I was at the Center for Jewish Art in, at the Hebrew University for three years in the 1990s. And at that stage, Jewish art wasn't really taken seriously as a subject. I mean, you know, it's all text. It's all about, you know, um, biblical text and rabbinic text and grappling, grappling with, you know, Hebrew and Aramaic and, and the, you know, the languages, classical languages. I mean, it wasn't about pictures, you know, people of the book, not people of the image. So that's something that has begun to change. It's still a very small, what we're doing, we're sort of, it's a minority subject within a minority subject. And certainly doing, um, working on architecture, I mean, I started working on architecture in the, in the 1990s in Israel when a Jewish art was still about manuscripts and uh, medieval manuscripts and sort of two-dimensional stuff. And you know, we started talking about, well, three-dimensional space. You know, it, it, uh, again, it was a bit mind-blowing. So uh, that, that's changed. And I think also what I was saying as well is that there, there, is, a, there is much more of an interest in religion now. I think that's come back because of the, you know, going through all the isms all of the, you know, the age of ideologies, as I, as I said, in the 19th century, and in a sense, you know, sort of gone all the way through that and out the other end, and then going back to religion. I think, well, why? You know, what's happening? And I think that's part of a larger preoccupation. And I think the Jewish studies, as always, is somewhere... It's a bit like being on the cutting edge. You know, technologia, it's on the, on the cutting edge of things. And I think Jews, being marginal people, um, embrace technology, like photography, like film, like computers now, you know, the sort of the Zuckerbergs and Facebook and things like that, um, and therefore perhaps at the, you know, the cutting edge of technology is not being, you know, within the establishments and so being more mobile and fluid, so picking up new trends much more easily. I think there's a greater questioning, I think Michael referred to it earlier, about the fact that it's not a celebratory history of minorities in Britain or another, and I think that that's something that's enduring, that there is a, an, a different approach in history departments to understanding minority histories, hidden histories, and uncovering um, some, a more critical approach, perhaps, to 
um, to official relations of government relations and refugee studies, and that's something that Tony Kushner is also taking forward in Southampton and still, uh, and still leading on, I would say. And there's, a last, there's time for one last question, which is this lady here. Could you just wait for the microphone to come to you, and then I'm afraid we've run out of time. Um, my question um, relates to your last point, Dr. Newman. First, Michael, you said something about Jews flocking naturally to photography, but you didn't say why. We know they went into money lending and so on. But I honestly don't see why, as Jews, whether secular or orthodox, why we should care if this photo were taken by a Jew or not. I mean, like you said, is this like, I can understand that blacks and other minorities, women feel that their composers, musicians, have been systematically ignored, and there's all this, um, you know, digging up of people from the past. But it sounds awfully parochial to me, and it sounds like a book in a series, Jews in architecture, Jews in, you know, um, sewing, Jews in, you know, plaster. Okay. Plastering. Thank you for your point, and I will let Michael answer. No, um, the main. I, I would say very often I pick things up, and that's that's exactly my response. And I think this is sort of what I was trying to avoid with this. My my point in dealing with it is that what I found, and I begin the book by saying this was supposed to be a footnote. That is, I was going to write a very different book, but then the more I got into the subject, the more I found that Jews were not just into this field or took the pictures, is that they tended to be the people who really moved the field in different directions, and they were so successful that nobody paid any attention to them. But I think that their situation as Jews had an influence on the kind of careers that they had, what was open to them, what wasn't open to them. It actually did have an influence in the ways that they worked. And, and one of the things I could say is a major part of this book is how Helmut Gernsheim and Walter Gernsheim fundamentally changed the relationship between photography and the fine arts. That is, Walter Gernsheim introduced a kind of photographic archive of architecture and art which had never existed before. Helmut Gernsheim came up with a way of photographing art and architecture that in some ways really did fundamentally change the way people looked at these particular subjects. And although in the world of the history of photography, he's completely disparaged. I think he's completely disparaged in large part because he was a refugee and a Jew. Almost everybody relies on his work without giving credit for it. So I think there, is, there are Jewish stories here, and, a lot, and there are some really crude, horrible, anti-Semitic stories in here as well which are part of the general history. Can I just say two words? Very, and we, we've got to wrap yeah. up, Sharon. So Nicholas yeah. Pevsner. Okay, I'll leave it so out. thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to ask you to join me in thanking our panel for a really fascinating discussion.